So is that nipple cream you have in your bag for your... For my lips. On my face. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, it's a top tip. It's the best thing in this weather for dry lips. Nipple cream. There we go. Just don't leave it accidentally on your desk at work like I did. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And in my prickly chair today is the wonderful (laughs) Mitch Oliver. Mitch has nearly 30 years experience in the consumer goods industry and in her board level role at Mars Incorporated, she is responsible for shaping and communicating the brand identity, reputation and vision. And since she has been in her current role, she has moved the reputation of Mars into the top quartile of global companies. That's no mean feat, amazing. (laughs) She has a track record of delivering growth and innovation and has led some truly groundbreaking campaigns. It is fair to say she leads from the heart and passionately believes that business can be both for profit and for good. Mitch has won multiple awards over her career. And in 2022, she was on Forbes magazine, editor's list of 43 people changing advertising for the climate. She also has several non-executive roles, including Unstereotype Alliance, an initiative for UN women that aims to eliminate harmful gender stereotypes, something Mitch cares deeply about. What you may not know about Mitch, and I loved finding this out, she is an avid powerlifter. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I need to check out those muscles. I have got some. But perhaps her most important role, she is partner to Paul and mum to Albie. Welcome, Mitch. Oh, we made it. I'm here. You are, you are. Thank you for that lovely intro. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. So, are you sitting uncomfortably? Yes, definitely. (laughs) No, no uh, trepidation, just absolutely. No, no, I'm definitely feeling mildly uncomfortable. Good, because that's the way it should be. But I think it's fair to say I'm particularly excited that not only this is our first episode for 2024, but also I'm not ashamed to admit that I have been trying to get you on this podcast since the very beginning. You're so, you're so beautifully persistent, Jen. (laughs) Uh, yes, you have. I, I don't know. I find it quite difficult to talk about yourself. And I know what you're looking for is something that's really open and authentic. And so I think you have to be in the right space mentally to be able to do that. And I wanted to be in the right space, Yeah, I think. so. But you, if I think about who I think Mitch is, I would completely say open, authentic, real, lovely, normal, down to earth. That's how I would. Hence why I've wanted you on the pod. That's what I would say you, you always are. Well, I like to think that I am that. I think I am that. I just, talking about it in a um, sort of formalised forum feels a bit uncomfortable, funnily enough. It takes some self-reflection about yourself. And I've I've been loving just sort of thinking about the fact I was coming on this podcast and going for a walk and a run this weekend and going over my mind. That sort of self-reflection, I think, is very valuable and actually something I don't spend enough time doing. I don't think any of us, many of us do, actually. So true. Yeah. And we don't do enough of it, for sure. I agree. But it's not the first time I've, to your point, beautifully persisted. My would 
maybe call it stalking um, <laughs> when I hadn't met you yet and I really wanted you to come to an event. I may have got in touch a few times inviting you to uh, yes. various things, but you finally did make one and we met and it was a quite beautiful it, moment, it wasn't was, it? Well, it's very kind, <laughs> kind of you to call it a beautiful moment. I basically didn't want to go because I was so, and I'm sure people will, under, will resonate, you know, I had a, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I had a relatively young child. Evenings were very precious. I was working really hard. And the last thing I wanted to do was spend my evenings sitting around tables in very lovely hotels, talking to very boring people when I'd much rather be at home with my family, to be honest with you. But you you were very persuasive that that was not what it was going to be. So I rocked up to the event. I will always remember being told, oh, you must meet the CEO, you must meet Gemma and being introduced. And first of all, I met this woman with long, dark hair, I think quite skin tight jeans and black boots and a leather jacket. And I went, um, oh, hi, lovely to meet you. Anyway, I've got to go because I've got to go and meet the, the CEO. <laughs> and you turned around and you went, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and, and I tell you what, <laughs> as, a, as a lesson in, which I'm sure we will talk about during this conversation, but, you know, recognising that we all stereotype and we all have biases. I was so embarrassed that there, my own bias had come out that I had assumed if I was meeting the CEO of the Marketing Society, they would be suited and booted. Well, you were booted, but not suited. <laughs> and actually that event was absolutely fantastic. And you definitely disrupted the whole formula of what these sort of industry forum evening events were which I've always admired you for and and think is incredibly brave and you created a space where people could speak uncomfortable truths with psychological safety I think that's very special thank you and I was quite chuffed that you didn't think I was the were chief exec. I think also I gave you a big hug I went thank you very much yeah. and from that moment we've done a lot of really good stuff together so what do we need to know about you that has shaped the Mitch sitting in front of me today Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I guess from a from a personal point of view, so I'm an only child. I've been very, very lucky. I mean, my parents are just fantastic. I have not got a. I haven't had a, sort of a big traumatic childhood or anything. Neither of my parents went to university, and they always made me believe that if I worked hard, and I was nice to people then life would be good kind of thing. And, and and not in a kind of unrealistic, you can be anything you want to be. I mean, like, I'm completely tone deaf. So, they, you know, they didn't kind of go, well, you could be a singer if you want to be. Clearly, I couldn't. But a real sense that if you work hard and you treat the people around you as equals, then you can have a wonderful life and be successful in however you define success. So my, my dad's an incredible hard worker. And my mum is literally one of the kindest people you could ever meet and both of them have a real I mean that the whole sort of attitude of no one's better than anyone else you know you might happen to have been born into a certain background or have a job with a certain job title I remember my mum would say you've all got to queue at the post office probably shouldn't talk about the post office at the moment but <laughs> everyone's got to stand in the queue at the post office that would be in uncomfortable the, I know that would be uncomfortable <laughs> in the same way you know we're all just human beings at the end of the day and treating everyone equally. So I think that was a big part. I have quite a varied background. My mum's French. Her stepdad was Lebanese. Where my, my dad was very sort of English, so quite a different background there. And I think that has all made me very aware of some of the complexities of 
different cultures, different backgrounds. Basically, my English grandparents were never happy that my dad married a bloody French woman. And it sounds funny, but honestly, it's not. It, I mean, it's xenophobia. It's an, it's You sit around the dinner mm. table with my mum providing dinner every Sunday and my, what I called her my nanny, my nanny would say, like, after they'd been married for like 15 years, you know, what happened to that lovely Belinda, John? That English girl, why didn't you marry her? I'm like, seriously, my mum sat there. Yeah. So, so I had a bit of that in my background, but they just, I was just very lucky. They focused a lot on my education and, um, and then I guess the only, the other thing I think that was really important was when I got the job at Mars, which I started as a graduate trainee. So I've been 30 years at the same place. So um, quite comfortable, one you could say, although there have been uncomfortable moments. I had a boss, Bob, who, when I was about 25 or 26, said something I'll never forget. We were doing like the annual appraisal. I still hate annual appraisals. You'd think you get over it, but I haven't. He said to me, stop focusing, Mitch, on what you're not very good at. He's like, you're never going to be any good at it. And getting ever so slightly better at it is not going to make you happy or successful. He said, let's work on what are you really good at and how do we make you absolutely brilliant at it? And that transformed working life for me. So that transformed it. And I've ever since I've just tried to focus on the things that I am good at and get and try and be brilliant at and just accept the stuff I'm not good at and let go of it, really. So I think those... The combination of, of my sort of ethos of, you know, work hard, honesty and kindness, and then my the sort of sense of focus on what you're good at. I mean, it's a much happier way to be, I think. I mean, it's a lovely, lovely thing mm. to think about. Work hard, be kind. I think be kind is the most me too. important, you know, that's the, if any young person ever asked me, give me a piece of advice, I'll just say be kind. Yeah. You know, you don't know what's going on in other people's lives for a start. Yeah. Um, but what you just said about strengths, I think it's acknowledge your weaknesses, embrace them yeah, and ignore them, quite frankly, and just focus yeah. on what you're Find ways to work around at. them. I mean, you have to be, a, yeah. you have to, you have to acknowledge them to your point, but you know, just find ways to work around them. My, my, my administrative stuff and pr planning is appalling. And that is actually a problem when you've got a big team working for you. That can be really problematic. But if you find a way, you, I surround myself with people who can help exactly. with that, etc. So, but yes, yeah, so I think those things have, I mean, there's a huge number of things, but those are a couple that spring to mind that have contributed. Well, they're lovely things and good on your life. Actually, there was another dad. thing. So I've been very lucky to have a woman called Fiona Dawson as my, on and off as my boss for best part of two decades. Uh, she's an incredible human. And when I came back from maternity leave and I decided your ambition now is to find a way to be the kind of leader you want to be and the kind of parent you want to be. And that's your ambition. And I just thought that was brilliant. I mm. thought that reframing of, you know, ambition is not just in a work context, it's in a life context. I think I've carried with me ever since as well. So yeah, smart lady. I Very smart that. lady. So it's time, Mitch. All right, okay. <laughs> what makes you uncomfortable? Hmm. So I was thinking about this and I think I I feel really uncomfortable when I feel restricted. So I, I had um, an operation a couple of months ago. I had a hysterectomy and 
and wasn't allowed to exercise afterwards. And I'm like a cat on a hot tin roof. Like physically being told I need to stay still is difficult. And and that's not the main point. The main point is I think I'd only just clock that I feel it physically because emotionally, if I feel I can't express myself, I'm not allowed to express my opinion, my point of view, particularly my emotions. It's like I, I feel it quite physically. I get like fidgety. I feel I can feel it almost like it wants to burst out of me. I find it incredibly uncomfortable trying to hold in thoughts, feelings, aspects of myself because someone either tells me to or because I perceive that the environment is not one where it's okay to express those kind of thoughts and feelings and aspects. So being restricted, I think, is what makes me feel really uncomfortable. So how have you overcome that and managed that over the years? Let's take the work context. I mean, I think from day one, I was told I needed to be better at managing my emotions. And I started to, at the beginning, I tried to literally cover them. So <laughs> just give you a stupid example. When I do presentations, and, and less so these days, but um, I would flush, my neck would flush. And it's just the adrenaline. It's nothing. And I used to literally, I'd always wear a scarf, a big scarf around my neck so that people couldn't see the flushing rather than just go, does it matter? Does it matter that I'm red in the presentation? Because actually the trying to stop it happening makes it worse. I would dress in a way that would try and project a, the image of someone who was much more together than I actually am. And I, I, I would just contain the things that I felt and thought. And then actually what happened a lot, which would drive me around the bend, and I bet you know this, that you have experienced this, Gemma, is I would then not say something in a meeting that I was thinking and that was pressing because I didn't think it was okay to say it. And then someone else would bloody say it. And I'd be going, oh, I should have said it. And someone else would say it and they'd go, oh, that's such a great point. And I'd be like, why don't I trust myself to say it? So, um, so I think at the beginning I tried to suppress that. And then eventually I learned that there is a big difference, actually, I think, between hiding that emotional side and the other end of the spectrum, which is just like vomiting your emotionals everywhere, which is equally not massively helpful. When a, I mean, sometimes you can't help it, but in a context, but trying to listen to your emotional state and use it effectively. So, for example, in meetings saying, I'm feeling quite angry about this, or I'm feeling upset about this, or um, certainly channeling passion. I mean, I use passion a lot as a leadership. I mean, I don't, leadership tool makes it sound like I'm. It's just a natural to me as I use you, passion yeah. and energy a lot. So I've, I've I've really tried to kind of learn to do it and and just be a bit messy. I'm not a neat and tidy person. I'm not you know emotionally be much more open about the messiness and create space where other people can be a bit messy. Because in that mess, I mean, I did a whole training thing for my team when I was in the marketing VP in the UK. We, we called it Love Your Wobbly Bits. Love um, that. Sort of physically and metaphorically. Mm. How can you just, okay, so these are the bits of me that are a bit messy and a bit wobbly. I'm going to share them with you. And then we're going to get on with our jobs because let's all just love our own wobbly bits first. And then we can kind of also just feel safe sharing them with other people. So I think that's, I've tried to 
veer between not just shutting it all in and not equally the other end of the spectrum, just letting it all go wild, but finding a way to go, there's actually power. There's power in showing your whole self and it actually is a very powerful tool in leadership to show your whole self. And I mean, people talk about vulnerability a lot in leadership, but that for me is absolutely fundamental. Mm. I love the way you just articulated that, your messy bits, because I was talking about, you know, showing your whole self, but yeah. your messy bits is just a really nice way that actually if you are a bit messy, it's, it's okay. Do you think that since you felt able to share that, that that's encouraged others to share their messy bits and their wobbly bits? I hope so. I mean, for me, that's how I connect with people. It builds trust as well. So I find it's interesting, actually. I find that if you're vulnerable about one thing, you will find that people will come and share stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect. It might not be directly related. So I remember a conversation with my team, actually, where we were talking about sharing some of the things about ourselves. And I shared that I was bisexual. And it was the first time that I had shared that in a professional environment. Now, it was mm. a safe space. It was with my direct reports. It wasn't like I wasn't on the stage. or, But it was in a safe space. And I was very nervous I was very uncomfortable sharing it. It felt like very private personal information. My life partner is a man, but it's part of my identity. Mm. I, I describe it a bit like I'm half French and half English, but I live in England <laughs> and I've, I've chosen to live in England, but I am part, I'm still half French. Yeah. yeah? So yeah. that's a big part of who yeah. I am and, and my identity and my thought processes and my sort of cultural context. And that's the same with my sexuality. So um, anyway, I shared it. And fine, everyone was like very good about it, as you would expect and hope. But then about a week later, a member of my team came to tell me about some problems that they had been experiencing at home with their partner. It was nothing about sexuality at all. It was a completely different topic. And some quite serious issues that they were facing at home that they mm. needed some help and support with with their partner. And... They said it was because I shared this piece of information about themselves. They realised that actually work, it was legitimate to talk about that to your boss and to ask mm. your boss, is there any help or support I can have with this situation? And I think that that's what happens. Yeah. So to answer your question about does it open other people up, I, I, I genuinely think it does actually, yes. If one person does it, it makes it a little bit easier for the next person too, I hope. Yeah, no, I... I... I agree. And actually, I've, I've probably said it a few times on this podcast, um, so apologies to regular listeners, but I was, you know, one of my favourite um, sayings is be you so others can be them. Yes. Yeah, I think it's I a think really that's, beautiful. That's a great way to put it, actually. Yeah. yeah, I like that. And that's one of the things about you, Gemma. I think you are also a very authentic, you are just you. There's no... You're telling me I'm messy, uh, aren't you? A little yeah, bit. you're basically... <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I mean, this whole concept of there being a work you and a home you, I, I can't get my head around mm, that. No. The, the, the effort it would require for me to know how to put things into a box when I left to go to work and then get them out again at home. All we have is our energy. Mm. All we have is what we choose to give our energy to right now. Nothing, there's nothing else that we have. That's what we have. And if you are in work and you are half of your head is thinking... Say my if my partner was a woman, and I must remember not to use the pronoun she. I must remember to say he or or, or partner, or not not reveal the fact that my partner's a woman, or whatever it might be, or 
or you're hiding the fact that you're actually desperate to leave the office at five o'clock because you've got a really critical thing you need to do, but you don't feel you can say, I've got a critical thing to do because it's childcare related and you think that might not make you look professional. All that energy, all that stuff is floating around in your head mm. and you can't possibly give whatever the content of the work is and as much focus and creativity and engagement. So, yes, I, I, I find the inefficiency of this pretending to be someone you're not deeply frustrating and the whole that whole fake it till you make it I think is really toxic it, it creates this you have to give this false impression that you're competent at something so you know I, I know this from you personally but also I think you know your profile everything you talk about you're really passionate about shaking conventional perceptions and particularly tackling harmful stereotypes where do you think that that comes from I don't really know. I think when I was growing up, I had no, it never crossed my mind that for being a girl or a woman was limiting in any way, shape or form, which I thank my mum and dad for. Mm. And then when I got into work at university, I never had that thought either. And then when I got into work, the working environment, it was different so I can say this because it's a very long time ago, but I was on the graduate training scheme and I worked in the factory for a year. So you went and worked around different parts of mm. the business. So I spent a year, I absolutely loved it, working in the chocolate factory in Slough. The glam. Um, oh, but it was great. <laughs> it was great. Brilliant people, incredible experience. And my appraisal said, literally said, Michelle has done quite well for a girl. Oh. Now, to be fair... That was by someone who was about to leave the business who the HR departments told them they had to change it. But it had like I was like, it was like my first experience of thinking that it was even relevant. Um Was it a man or it a was woman? a man. A it man. was a man and a man of a certain generation and a factory and all mm. those equally stereotypes. Mm. I don't think it's excusable. And then I started to see around me so you would see the conversations that were had about women were different than the conversations that were had about men I mean this is in the era where people would say well we could promote her but she you know she's 30 and she's probably going to have a baby quite soon and 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 that was people felt that that was kind of an obviously kind and normal conversation and I think there's still some of that today yeah I mean I'm not legally you can't do that quite rightly and morally it's obviously wrong but and I just saw what I actually experienced was brilliant women leaving work, particularly when they became parents. They couldn't find ways to combine their their desire to be great parents with their desire to be great marketeers in this case, and none of the men doing it. So the men also wanted to be great parents and also wanted to be successful marketeers, but they never opted out of work for it. I couldn't understand it. I have the loss of talent, the loss of potential talent. And then you look around you and you look at all of the stereotypes around you that you see. And I suddenly realised that if, you ever, if you'd ever watched any movie with a woman who was the boss up until that point, and to some extent still, they were either very sexualised or they were a bitch. And power suits. But there was never just someone who was 
a boss trying to do their job or any advert. You know, you watched any advert, which is why I got, you know, and the woman was always in the kitchen doing the cooking. It's just so, it, it comes back to being this restriction. You know, I don't want, what for what reason on earth, the fact that I've got boobs mean that I'm going to want to do more cooking? I mean, why, where's the logic step in that? It makes no sense. To what reason does it mean that I can't be a great leader? And and equally, I would say, does it mean that a man can't be a great, do want to do the cooking or not want to be a leader? I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think Paul would mind me saying he hated leadership. I mean, that wasn't his space. That's my partner. So I find it deeply frustrating that people are limited. And I find the the stereotypes that we see day in, day out, all around us, all they do is they perpetuate our limits rather than open our minds to what is possible. And people are unhappy as a consequence. Men and women living in that those, that paradigm are unhappy and not living life at their potential. I mean, have you ever heard the expression a working dad? Let's talk about working dads. No one says, oh, I hear you're a working dad. The, the data from UN Women says we're about 180 years away from gender equality in the world. So um, it's what, however much it's changing, it's not fast enough for my liking. And I get, and that's that's my passion. I mean, um, mm, that's I what makes me very frustrated and really drives me to action. And and it actually comes back to the, what you feel uncomfortable mm. about. So it all comes don't back limit to this, me. this restriction and limits. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't. That's what makes me uncomfortable. Do not limit me because I happen to have certain physical or chromosomes or whatever. Just what, do not make that define who I am. Um, I mean, I'm, you, you know, a passionate feminist and I think um, Simone de Beauvoir says, you know, one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman. Society's expectations are placed on you and I do not accept them. I, and I think it limits men as much as it limits women. Yeah. Um, I think as a society, we would be happier if we are uh, more open to embrace that we're all different. So don't get me wrong, I don't think we're all the same. We're all different, but we can. We don't have to conform to our stereotypes. For women to be successful, they often have to conform to the male stereotype. And actually what we need to do is to break that and say there are different ways to be in a boardroom. There are different ways to lead. There are different ways to be successful in a career. And one, you know, if I go back to the emotion, now it is a stereotype that women are more emotional, but I think that's just because men have not enabled themselves to be, they've suppressed their own emotion. But I've cried in the boardroom. I've got so frustrated that I'm bright red. You know, I've had all sorts of emotional reactions and, you know, it, at the moment, that is still not perceived to be OK. Why do you think that is? Because when you told you told me that a long time ago, because I think when I was learning, you know, how to be on a board and, and, and run boards and all that kind of stuff, you said you said to me that you'd cried and it made me, oh, you can be yourself. You, you don't have to hide and not let those emotions release. I thought to myself, that's a brilliant example of a leader role modelling and showing the way, as opposed to in a negative way. So why do you think it, it's still seen as, as a negative thing? Oh, God. And how do you think question. we change that boardroom? I mean, there's only one way to change it, and that's by being it. 
be the change. Own your emotions. I was in a meeting the other day with a colleague in America and it made me feel, I, I felt I was, so I'm now at the opposite end of the spectrum and I'm a menopausal, well, I had a hysterectomy, so I'm definitely menopausal, um, menopausal woman. And we, I was in a meeting with a colleague in the States and he was, we were disagreeing on a topic and that's fine, right? That's work. You disagree on things. But I was emotional about it because I cared. And I got the mo- had the most almighty hot flush. I mean, like red. And, and what, I was getting really frustrated because I could tell what his perception was I'd lost the plot because I was clearly bright red about this topic where it actually it was a biological thing. So I just, I decided to own it. And I said, um, I said to him, I know I might look like I'm slightly overreacting to this conversation, but I'm a 51-year-old menopausal woman and I'm having a hot flush. <laughs> he had no idea how to deal with that. Um, but at least once you've said it, it's out there. So I think the way to change it is to is to be it. And, and, and a, an equivalent, when I've had it in the boardroom, the first time it happened to me, I just walked out of the room because I didn't know how to deal with it and I hid in the ladies' toilet and I texted my colleague who was still in the room, the sales director, Rez, and said, what do I do now? (laughs) And he texted and said, mate, that was brilliant. I remember he went, mate, that was brilliant. Come back in. I went back in the room and they said, actually, I I think I've written about this. He said, I think you reflected the emotions of the room there, Mitch. So let's now all have a think about how are we feeling? Because it was a difficult conversation about a turnaround and potential mm. redundancies. Let's now, let's think about that. There's obviously emotion in the room. How are we really feeling about this decision that we've just put on the table? And so now... That's amazing. That was amazing. And Rez, as he knows, I will always thank him for that moment. Um, that's what an ally is, I think, in that moment, by the way. And it, and it sounds like so much in that room was left unsaid. Mm-hmm. And I think I could feel it, mm. but I didn't know how to express it. Yeah. So the only way I could express it was this emotion that came out from me. And I think now what I try and do is listen to that emotion. So if I'm feeling upset, I mean, normally, actually, like many of us, anger can come out as tears. But if I'm feeling something, I try and say, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm feeling uncomfortable at the moment let's feel mm. something uncomfortable in the room I'm feeling really angry and I can't quite work out why because normally someone else will pick that up and go oh I think it might be and then suddenly you completely change the nature of the conversation it's like magic yeah so that's what I think I love that so you've done some fantastic work I mentioned in the intro groundbreaking campaigns You've used your platform, I suppose, all the things that you care about and the limits and the restrictions to drive change. So how have you done that? So, you know, I've got in my head, I've got the the Maltesers um, lighter side of life campaign. Um, So the Maltesers was a brilliant moment in my career and there's been two times, big times in my career where I've gone, what am I doing? doing with my life am I going to have spent my whole life advertising selling chocolate bars or whatever it might be and and is that the thing I'm going to do so you know midlife crisis one 
And my partner at the time was working for Oxfam. And I remember my son was about four or something or five. And I heard someone say to him, you know, what do your mummy and daddy do? And he said, mummy makes chock chock. I thought that's quite cool. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> I, might, I don't make it, but that's fine. I'll take Willy it. Willy Wonka. And he, like exactly. So, I think yeah. in his mind, I was Willy Wonka. And then he said, and daddy feeds the poor starving babies with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh God, what am I doing in my life? I just trust kids to bring I know, they get right to the love of it. Yeah. And so I thought, I at that point, I thought I should go and work for an NGO or I should. I needed to do something mm. more meaningful. And I spoke to lots of people who did work at NGOs. And, and what I realised is the power and the budget and the influence that and the scale that I had at Mars from my role, I was marketing VP at the time in the UK, was huge. And, and actually they said to me, if I had a fraction of the resources that you had. So it completely transitioned to how how can I, rather than leave and go and work in a small NGO, how can I use the positional power that I've got to try and do something positive? And that's what I did. Um, so, so I guess how I did it was I brought my own personal sense of purpose. Instead of trying to do stuff out of work, I thought, how can I do something more in work? And that started my inclusive marketing journey. The Maltesers campaign was a big part of that. And we started auditing representation in advertising, et cetera, et cetera. But it all came from going, giving myself permission, yeah. I think. Not seeing purpose as a kind of soft, fluffy thing that you do at the weekends. Like a buzzword. Exactly. But yeah. seeing it as actually an engaging way to lead, and frankly, something that can be a competitive advantage, I later realised. But at the time, I've, and also my team were so engaged in it as well. It was fabulous. So it was through making that transition to bringing the personal into my sort of professional job. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. When when I became chief exec yeah. and the brave agenda. Exactly. Yeah. And being able to use the platform to really start these conversations that matter. Exactly. With marketers all over the yeah. world. And that was really important to me as opposed to I just run events and do good marketing no, stuff. Exactly. That's about, exactly the same. Yeah. 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 And your second moment, is that your. Uh, so the second moment, position? so about five years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. And I was very lucky. I caught it early. Check your boobs, everyone. Go to the doctor if you find anything. But there's a bit anyone who's been through a cancer diagnosis or someone close to them has will know there's a bit where you know you have cancer but until you've had the operation and they've checked everything you don't know how bad it is and at the time for me that was six weeks unfortunately these days with waiting lists it can be up to three months mm. and and the only person I had known at that point in my life who'd had breast cancer was my best friend at work, and who sadly died within a year of her diagnosis. So in my mind, I had no idea if I was about to be told, you've got a year, or, you know, this is early days and we'll be fine. And and I, and I that, <laughs> nothing, nothing quite focuses your mind yeah. as sharply as, mm. as that. And, and the beauty of that moment was one, I look back on my life and I thought, it's been great. I've had a great career. I've got a great family. I've had a great life. 
I've done what I, I've, you know, and I think that shift in purpose at work was really important. Mm. But it also reconfirmed to me that I wanted to be spending more of my time both within Mars and I also do stuff outside of Mars. So I was vice chair at Stonewall and some other not-for-profit on things that help people be their authentic selves so they can fulfill their potential. Because that's, again, when at the end of your life, you want to look back at it and go, I fulfilled my potential. I, I loved as much as I could, whether it's my immediate family or the world. And I, I felt loved. And how can you, you know, you don't feel loved if you don't think you'll be accepted because of your hidden disability or because of your sexuality or because you're not, you don't, dress right to be a leader you, you need to be accepted to feel loved so um I know it sounds a bit deeper meaningful but I didn't you know interestingly I didn't decide I need to pack it all in and go and oh, I did think we might buy a house on an island but that didn't last very long that thought <laughs> um I thought I want to do more so yeah. it just sort of doubled down mm. and on the thinking that I want to do more of this in my work. And actually that's when I transition I was transitioning into the role that I'm now in, where I'm responsible for all of our work on purpose across all of our brands globally and, and very brilliantly for me as a career highlight, responsible for the corporate brand. Mm. Which if you can imagine, I started 30 years ago as a graduate trainee in the factory in Slough, and now I'm getting to work on the Mars Incorporated brand and working with the family owners of the business and the board, global board, I mean, that's a real privilege. So um, I feel very lucky and very blessed. It feels like you almost, through through that journey, through that that process, you, you almost created your dream role, right? So where Yes, you could... I did. <laughs> I've, done, I've tried. I think it's about the third time I've made up a job and tried to get people Love to give it, it to me. Yeah. It didn't work the first two times. And this time... It was a it was a bet. So this was I'm so talking about being uncomfortable. I like security. Mm. I'm not um, always the most disruptive person. I mean, the fact that I've been in one employer for a long time is testament to that. I'm I'm also very loyal. But this job was you can have it. We'll give it a year, and we'll see if you we can get buy in to what you're trying to do. And if we can't. It wasn't an obvious next role for me. If we can, great, then there's a job. And it's six years this April I've been in role. So I know years? I can't believe it's six years. And, Gosh. you know, we've relaunched the Mars Incorporated brand. We work with the family to define their purpose for the next generation. We've created a program called Make a Difference Marketing, which is about how we really embed authentically and meaningfully purpose in our brands so it's a sustained effort where relevant to the brand it's been it's been fab amazing amazing and just going back to what you said before I remember um I remember when you were diagnosed and you, and you called yeah. me um I remember that conversation so acutely I was in Bill's in Soho funnily yeah. enough I, I remember I'm a visual person I remember and I remember you saying that you wanted to tell me about it and you were very pragmatic and and um you know this this was happening um and I remember you saying I probably won't ever share this publicly yeah and then you did didn't you well then I think 
four months after I was diagnosed. I think it was a very short period. Uh, of not time even after, that, actually. No. Three or four months after I was diagnosed, so I was in. I was. I'd had my operation. I was in the middle of my treatment. I were, I won the Brave Leader of the Year yeah. for the Marketing Society, which was which is one of my career highlights. I was so chuffed, and I went to the event. And I stood on the stage and that was a classic moment where I I had no idea what I was going to say. And then I proceeded to tell <laughs> the entire room that I was in the middle of breast cancer treatment and that they should all check their boobs. I can't quite remember and what I said, you, if I'm honest. You were amazing. I think just before you got up, because we were sitting next to each other, you said... You, you you were kind of like, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? And then and then you just stood there and just had you just owned the room and you just said, actually, I'm going to tell you all what what I've been going through. Yeah. And you just you got a standing ovation because I think a you were brilliant and brave. You also I think said, if you're not brave, you're boring. If you're not brave, which you're boring. Really helped me, given I created the brave yeah, agenda. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. yes, Mitch. <laughs> but it was so beautiful because as a as a role model as well to people in that room. I, we can share these things about ourselves to we have that to, psychological we? safety. We spend all this time at work. Yes. If you're going through something like this, if you can't say, I might be a bit off for the next couple of weeks because I'm waiting for some test results or, you know, for whatever it might be. And and I guess, you know, I am now of a generation. I'm getting to an age where this is, I, I now know lots more people, sadly, yeah, who have too. diagnoses and stuff. So, yes, that was a bit of a moment. And I'd forgotten I said that. Why be boring when you can be brave? You said yeah. that a couple of times and every time, because you're a great marketing leader, every time you were giving me validation because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, as, as you know. But it was, it was a it was a beautiful moment. What would you say you have learnt from being uncomfortable? I think what I've learnt is to trust myself more to trust my instincts more. It's interesting we're just talking about brave, that, that being brave pretty much always pays off, even if you're not right, because I think you people respect bravery. Mm. And I think the other thing is, I mean, I've listened almost all, I think, now of your oh. of the podcast and this, and I think you know, everyone you. talks about that it's in the uncomfortable moments that you do your most learning. I'm not always very... I'm not like gung-ho, make me uncomfortable all the time. I, 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 I really like being comfortable sometimes. <laughs> I really Great. like feeling safe and cosy <laughs> and comfortable. But I think what I've learned is that I also want to trust the people around me more because... I feel uncomfortable because I'm second guessing what other people might think, how they might judge, how they might react. And don't get me wrong, sometimes I've had people who've reacted like like when I came out when I was 30 and I had my, I was in a relationship with a woman and I came out to my friends and and not all my friends reacted well to that. But others completely surprised me mm. wonderfully and beautifully. If you lean into the uncomfortable space, people will kind of support you. Mm. So I think trying less to second guess people and trusting a bit more that it'll be okay. Yeah. It'll be okay. I gave my son's got his mocks at the moment for his GCSEs. And the mantra I've said to him is, it'll be okay. So even if you fail the exam, if whatever happens, if you forget the answer to a question, it will be okay. 
I think a lot of great entrepreneurs have that attitude. They don't think about all the things that can go wrong. They think about all the things that can go right. And I need to learn to think more about what can go right. I think I have a bit of a habit of thinking about, I'm very, it's one of the reasons I'm quite a good non-exec actually, is I'm very good at thinking about all the risks and not, I sometimes think a bit more about all the things that can go right. It's, it's like what you said earlier, you know, the only thing we've got is our energy. Completely. So it's how we show up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the thing we can control. Exactly. Exactly right. So, yes, so I think being uncomfortable is an opportunity not just to learn about yourself, but to learn about others and to learn that on the whole, I think people are really positive and you will probably get a good reaction. And it's worth a punt. It's worth a punt because for all the for the couple of bad reactions you might get, it will be worth it because there'll be people who surprise you. Why do you think, and this is a really important question for you particularly, Mitch, given all the brilliant work you've done and, and, and quite pioneering work in our industry, I would say. I wouldn't just say you have done the <laughs> pioneering work in our industry. Why is it important for brands to get uncomfortable? Well, creativity comes from discord. Creativity comes often at the point of two things mismatching or rubbing against each other. I think that's why diversity is so important for creativity because different points of view, if you get the same point of view, everyone's saying the same thing, A, it's really boring and and it's not very creative, is it? You're not going to go, because creativity comes from tension and brands absolutely have to have creativity at their heart in order to be relevant and to grow. So I think that, I think for that reason, there has to be some discomfort in the process around brands in order to unleash the creativity. And um, what I don't think, controversially, is that every brand has to be out there making uncomfortable points, making the world feel uncomfortable. Because bra- some brands will be all about comfort and security and safety. And, and like comfort. Exactly, like <laughs> comfort. And actually... Actually, a lot of what we want from brands is that consistency of promise. Mm. You don't want necessarily a brand to be, depending on what kind of brand you work on, to be challenging you all the time. But I think as marketers, so I'm not sure the brand needs to be and feel comfortable, but as marketers, what we need to be doing is thinking about what in the future might happen that would make us feel really uncomfortable and how do we prepare our brand for it now? How do we bring that different perspective into to break through creatively. I mean, we never would have made the Maltesers ads if one of the people in the creative team at AMV wasn't a woman living with a disability herself who'd got fed up with all the Paralympic advertising that said you had to be a super... Yeah, if you were disabled, you had to be a superhero. Mm. And she was like, I'm no superhero, I'm just a woman getting on with my life and I want to be able to talk about it. So, and ha- and, you know, we had lots of uncomfortable conversations making those ads, you know, how do you talk about casting people with disability? And can you believe we didn't have a disabled toilet at the casting? I can believe it. All, all the stories I've heard I mean, after working with the likes of Karen Caroline Casey and, and, and Valuable Five Hundred. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there were lots of uncomfortable moments, but my God, they were worth it for a groundbreaking campaign. And I will always say, not only did it change attitudes towards disability but it was the best performing campaign from a ROI point of view we'd had on the brand in 10 years. And it meant we were in the Houses of Parliament talking about the positive effect that advertising can have on society. I mean, it was ching, 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 win, 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 and has continued. I mean, now they're talking about maternal mental health and teasers in the UK. So that came from 
discomfort. But but the brand Maltesers is an uncomfortable brand. It's a delicious brand. It's a delicious brand, yeah. and it's a and it's a brand you want to feel close and intimate with and comfortable with. I think so. That's the differentiation I would make. I definitely think it's had a ripple effect though, where marketing leaders, marketeers, teams want to do more with their campaigns. They want yes. to um, have more purpose-led campaigns. And I think that without you and the the creative team and, you know, some other brands that have, have led the way, we wouldn't have the brands pushing oh, boundaries. I'm sure. That's, I the think there have been a now. number of great campaigns of which the Maltesers one was one. But the thing for me is I don't think you should have a brand wanting to have a purpose. I think you need a brand that wants to have an impact Nice. And what's the impact that you want to have in the world? And is it meaningful to your brand? Is it authentic? Is it something that's relevant? So for Maltesers, for example, it's very relevant to be talking about women's conversations, whether it's about maternal health or whether it's about life with disability, because that's what Maltesers has always been about. It's been Mm. about getting women together and having lighthearted conversations. So you need to do something that's real and authentic to your brand and not just try and slap a purpose on it. And I think that's what's in the world now. The the conversation about purpose has become quite polarised and there's a bit of a backlash against purpose. And I totally understand that. But I don't think the issue is purpose. The issue is like any marketing lever, you can do it well or you can do it badly. Mm. And you can do purpose badly and you can do purpose well. And purpose done well is authentic sustained it's a it's a strategy over a long term and you measure the impact that you're having but I also think that um often brands try to do something but then they get absolutely slammed for it yeah and I think actually it's a brilliant thing if they're trying to do something they'll learn and maybe do it better the next time and to your point really think about the impact yeah as opposed to well the the Maltesers ads were the most complained ads we uh, we'd ever made at Mars when we aired them and nobody remembers that element of them isn't that interesting we could continue talking forever this has been so fascinating i've really enjoyed our uncomfortable conversation and thank you for thank you for sitting in our prickly chair oh and thank you Gemma, for inviting me and um i'm so glad that i did turn up to that event whenever it was and met the woman in the leather jacket and the (laughs) fuck me boots i didn't say that and the black boots Um, (laughs) and that now we're here discussing yeah. all of this so thank you thank you and I'm, I'm glad you did too it's been a it's been a wonderful journey yep. hasn't it and um, thank you so much I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production the producers are Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh if you enjoyed this podcast this award winning podcast I might add then please do me a massive favour and follow us recommend us and if you're feeling really kind leave us a review the bigger the following the more opportunity to have the best guests like Mitch and I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with lots of incredible people. Thank you so much. Until next time.